From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Our D.C. reporter, Caitlin Kim, has had a front row seat at the impeachment trial this week. She'll join us from Washington to share the view and catch us up on Colorado's congressional delegation. Then, they don't get nearly as much attention, but boys are also victims of sex trafficking. I don't understand why there are people like that in the world. I don't get how a human is physically possible of doing this. Later in the show, Master Gardener Lonnie Godet answers your questions. Yes, it's winter, but it's not too early to think about the botanical brightness of spring. One tip, don't fertilize simply because you think you have to. We do it because of habit, because someone said we should, or because we're on a contract to have it fertilized. And a Colorado birthday bash for Dolly Parton. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. House impeachment managers, including a Colorado congressman, will wrap up their arguments today. The president's defense is expected to start tomorrow. Perhaps you've been glued to the news, or maybe you've been avoiding the coverage. Either way, let's take stock of the week with CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim. She has been at the U.S. Capitol watching these proceedings. Hi again, Caitlin. Hi. And CPR politics editor Megan Verley is in the studio here in Denver. Hi, Megan. Salutations, Ryan. (laughs) Several members of the Colorado delegation are in the spotlight. We'll start with Jason Crow. He is an impeachment manager, so he's presenting the House's case in the Senate. Uh, Folks were initially surprised when Nancy Pelosi picked him. He's a freshman, wasn't necessarily on board from the get-go with impeachment. Talk more about his role, Caitlin, and has it become more clear why he was selected? Yes, I think it has become more clear. Um, Representative Crow has been helping make the national security arguments of the case against the president. And, you know, while he's talked about the facts of the case, you know, he also brings personal experience to those facts. Um, on the first day of arguments, we heard Representative Crow go through the timeline for the hold on military assistance to Ukraine. And we got to the equipment um including some counter-battery radar, he humanized it. He spoke about how that radar helped his unit in Afghanistan. You know, they get like 30 seconds of warning before, as he said it, um, rockets or mortar fire rain down on them. So that's part of the reason Speaker Pelosi chose him. It's that he can talk about, you know, it's one thing to talk about something in theory, but he can explain how that translates on the battlefield. Caitlin, do you get any sense um, what people think of how Crow's doing, What, what the senators he's presenting to think of it? Um, I'll, I did get to speak with uh, Democratic Senator Michael Bennett yesterday, and he praised Crow's work as one of the managers. He talked about how Crow, you know, we talked about how Crow started noticing senators getting restless um, during one of his presentations, and he broached this idea of a break, um, even though he had only about 15 minutes left to present. The break didn't happen, but Crow did kind of regain the attention of senators, and Bennett said that, like, so few politicians would be that self-aware. Most politicians would just keep reading and talking. But um, Bennett also saw it as a sign of how serious Crow was taking his role. Now, Crow, by the way, is an attorney. And as you've reflected there, Caitlin, he's a veteran. So uh, this freshman Democrat from Aurora is essentially serving as prosecutor. And then we have Colorado's two U.S. senators serving as jurors. Uh, we mentioned that you spoke with Senator Bennett, Caitlin. What's he saying about the trial thus far? 
Well, Bennett thinks that the impeachment managers are presenting a compelling case. Um, Regardless of whether the president is eventually acquitted or not, Bennett sees this proceeding as an opportunity to say what our standard for presidential behavior is supposed to be and reaffirming the system of checks and balances. Um, Bennett is calling for additional witnesses and documents to be submitted. He says he doesn't understand why anyone would not support that. Um, This is actually what he had to say. No executive has the right to use a privilege to cover up their wrongdoing. And as long as Donald Trump is refusing to put any witnesses and any documents on this trial himself, he has no right to complain about those of us that draw a judgment based on the evidence that is available to us. He can't have it both ways. Bennett, of course, is still a presidential candidate, and obviously he's pretty tied to the Senate chamber these days. How, how is the Senate trial affecting his campaign? I'm curious. You know, it's obviously limiting the amount of time of campaigning he can do in person. Um, The Senate is supposed to be in session Monday through Saturday, and some of these have been really long days. Um, That leaves only Sundays for campaigning. He does have events in New Hampshire scheduled for this Sunday, um, but for the most part, his campaign is also going to go virtual. They're talking about setting up telephone town halls or Facebook Live events, and the campaign is also going to have surrogates and volunteers on the ground that will be getting Bennett's message out. And that's obviously not something he faces alone. Many senators running for president. I'll say that special coverage will resume today and tomorrow on Colorado Public Radio. Uh, Let's talk about Republican Senator Cory Gardner. He's playing his cards pretty close to his vest. Megan, what's he said about the Senate trial so far? Well, about the trial itself, very little. Gardner is taking the approach that he's a juror and jurors in regular trials don't get to talk about the case while it's going on. And and he um, is taking the same approach to this case. you know, we, we heard from one of his staffers um, that he takes these constitutional duties very seriously. That means not having a trial through the media to maintain impartiality. Um, you know, critics of Gardner say, hmm, that's a really great way to not say anything that you could get caught out on. Um, but, you know, he and his staff have really said, like, this is my role, not to talk until this is over. Now, there's a lot of speculation about how the positions that he takes in this trial in open votes uh, might relate to his reelection bid. You know, some are hoping, for example, that he might vote to allow witnesses or additional evidence, something perhaps to sweeten the pot for constituents in this purple state where unaffiliateds are so strong. Caitlin, what's your impression there? You know, like Megan said, he hasn't really given us any clues. Um, he keeps talking about how seriously he's taking his uh, responsibilities. I can see him taking notes and paying attention to the arguments being made. But um, most strategists and operatives that I've spoken with don't expect him to vote to convict. They're less certain about whether he'd vote to allow witnesses and additional documents. Only four senators would have to break with Majority Leader McConnell to do that. But even um, and even the president has gone sort of back and forth on this. But I can't help but think that something his Republican base in Colorado would not like to see. And he's going to need them uh, to come out strong for him in November. Okay, uh, you are watching this unfold at the U.S. Capitol, Caitlin. Uh, Any of those folks who've seen it on television kind of see this locked down flat image. What's what is it like in that chamber? Just take us there for a moment. Yeah, it's, it's actually kind of odd because it's like watching a university seminar class. It's really quiet. You know, no laptops, no no one looking at their phones or even smartwatches. No electronics are allowed in. They can only drink water or milk in the chamber. You know, no food is allowed, although there is a candy desk. 
And, you know, they're not supposed to talk on punishment of imprisonment, although you will see people whisper to one another. You know, some people will pass notes. People will stand up, walk to the back, stretch their legs. Um, A couple of senators have done some little loops around. But for the most part, they're seated at their desk with binders taking notes. Um, And they're there for like several hours and not everyone looks engaged all the time. Some of them kind of seem like they're napping or at least resting their eyes for a long time. And um, one North Carolina senator actually passed out some fidget spinners to his colleagues yesterday. So I saw saw a couple of those on the desk. Um, I will say I only saw one finished glass of milk on a senator's desk and it wasn't Gardner or Bennett. So specific, milk or water. All right. Uh, Well, thanks (laughs) to both of you for a picture of what we have seen in the Senate this week and the impeachment managers who have been delivering their case. Time now for our weekly news quiz. Somehow Megan keeps agreeing to participate. I in, really shouldn't. In this circus. Uh, but this is Caitlin's first time. And in honor of her, this will be a Washington, D.C. edition of the quiz. Um, and this is an even playing field, I think, because although Caitlin's based in D.C. now, Megan used to live there when mm-hmm. you worked for NPR, Talk a of the Nation. A long time ago, yeah. so don't ask any modern questions. Okay, this week, correct answers will get this sound. Oh, so, God, no. That's the, chi- <laughs> that's the children's song, Baby Shark. It's become a de facto anthem for the Washington Nationals baseball team. <laughs> the backstory is too much to go into. You can Google it. Uh, incorrect answers this week. Get this. That's the sound of a swamp. And we leave it entirely up to you whether D.C. is one and whether it's been drained. Okay, here we go. Caitlin, why is the Washington Monument different shades? Is it A, because the stones actually come from three different quarries? Is it B, because the monument has weathered differently depending on the height of the stone? Or C, the result of graffiti having to be sanded away? Uh, A? Indeed, the stones in the monument actually come from three different quarries and different periods of time. Megan, true or false... The original design for the Washington Monument called for a circular temple at the obelisk's base with 30 columns. That sounds tacky enough to be true. (laughs) That is totally true. Part of the original design. And it was supposed to be a sort of hall of statuary. Caitlin, there is a postal museum in Washington, D.C., my co-host Avery Lill apparently is a huge fan of this museum. Uh, they have an exhibition about delivery vehicles, including the Mailster, an unsteady three-wheeled postal vehicle. True or false, one letter carrier complained that his Mailster was tipped over by a large dog. <laughs> that sounds crazy enough to be true. <laughs> Totally true. Straight from the museum's website. So you can go see that exhibition about delivery vehicles at the Postal Museum in D.C. Okay, finally, Megan, on the National Cathedral Mm. in Washington, there is a gargoyle of Darth Vader. True or false? Too easy. That Darth Vader gargoyle is like super famous in D.C. Totally true. In the 1980s, there was a design, a carving competition for children. A kid submitted Star Wars Darth Vader. It won. So did a raccoon, a girl with pigtails, and a man with an umbrella. You did perfectly on our DC quiz. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Caitlin Kim, CPR's Washington correspondent and politics editor Megan Verlee, who deserves this theme. That's the kind of editor she is. 
Ooh, I want this every time I walk down the hall towards my reporters. Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Public Radio continues to bring you special coverage of the Senate impeachment trial on CPR News when proceedings are underway. Access to this important, developing story is an essential part of Colorado Public Radio's commitment to keep you informed. During this special coverage, we're also making the regular CPR News daily schedule available on HD Radio at 90.1 FM Channel 2 in Denver and online at CPR.org. When people think of sex trafficking, they may picture a young woman or girl. But boys and men are victimized as well, and it's likely underreported. A bolder filmmaker tells their story in a new documentary. When you think about what darkness and evil is, it's like what that is. And when you're in that situation, you feel like you're in hell. And you just feel darkness all the time. The film by Anna Smith is simply called Boys, and Anna, welcome to our program. Uh, Thank you for having me. Also with us is Caroline McKinnon. She leads Streets Hope in Denver, which supports all victims of human trafficking, including victims of sex trafficking. And Caroline, welcome to the show. Thank you. I just want to warn folks that this conversation may contain some graphic descriptions. Anna, one of the men you profile laments that the news is indeed often about women and children. Women and children, he repeats. Why do you think men have been left out of this conversation? Yeah, our culture mainly views men as the perpetrators, the ones that will produce harm when it comes to sex trafficking or even sexual harm. We generally don't see boys and men as even being able to be victims. We view them as invincible, untouchable, and again, the ones who are the perpetrators. And this is not necessarily the case. I guess a statistic that's often cited is that 98% of trafficking victims are female, 2% male. But you learn in your film that people close to trafficking believe that the figure of boys and men involved is much higher. Absolutely. Some statistics actually tell us about 50% of traffic youth are boys. 50%? 50%. The film also goes into how homophobia might play into perceptions of this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm, There's a stigma and a shame associated around male sexual harm. And so it can be easy for someone to associate that with something like gender identity. The idea that if uh, a young man or a boy is abused and the abuser is also male, that that becomes something even more shameful to talk about. Do I have that right? Indeed, yes. You point out that in some cases it takes as long as 20 years for men to reveal what has happened to them, while others say they absolutely have no memory of entire years of their lives. Do you think that this affects men differently than it does women? I think it does. Our culture produces this norm that men are not able to be harmed. And so it's often for a man who has this story to think that they're alone, that they could be one of the only ones that has this experience. So it takes years for them to come out. And then on top of that, the shame of the harm that has been done to them, often perpetrated by a man, not always, can be women as well. And there's this narrative, as we've established, that men aren't Uh, victimized as much. That may not be the case, but that's the storyline. So I think it's easier to feel alone. Absolutely. It's easier to feel alone. It's very normal for a man who is a survivor who doesn't know any other survivors to feel like they are indeed completely alone. Well, uh, this film makes a fascinating distinction, Caroline. 
uh, around the idea of male victims being runaways versus thrown aways. Does that resonate with you, the idea that uh, men and boys involved in sex trafficking haven't necessarily left home of their own volition? It's often that they've been thrown out. I think that's right. And I think it it has to do with our social uh, stigmas around, still around kids coming out as gay uh, or trans, not knowing what community they belong in, looking for a community, and families rejecting them. Um, and so it's it's tragic, really. But I think the thrown away idea is is very relevant. So what you're saying there is that a kid might come out as gay to their parents. The parents see that as unacceptable, and the kid may be thrown out of the house for that reason. Yes, absolutely. And then they are more vulnerable to sex trafficking because they're homeless. Is that the idea? Yes. Talk a little bit more about the vulnerabilities there. Yes. So... Uh, Vulnerabilities are really what leads to the exploitation, and vulnerabilities take a lot of different forms, but it, it does have to do with people who are, have been rejected by their families or whose family uh, backgrounds are in, unstable, you know, involve drug use, physical abuse, sexual abuse, things like that. Poverty is also a vulnerability. Uh, racism you know, genderism, all of those things, lack of economic opportunity. But in our country, in the U.S., really what we see is is, is the economic um, pressures and also this sexism and, and racism. Say more about the economic pressures. Help me understand how well, that plays a role. So if you're, if you were um, born into a family that has faced intergenerational poverty, so poverty generation after generation after generation, and the lack of opportunity that comes with it. So you're living in a neighborhood where the schools aren't good, or you're not encouraged to go to school for whatever reason, or somebody doesn't think you have the ability to make anything more of yourself than your parents have. There's no mentoring. There's no there's no assistance for you. Um, the social safety nets that we have are, are weak right now. And so... Um, Really trafficking the exploitation is around people who are looking for a better life in many ways, whether it's love or economic opportunity. That's where it starts. The traffickers know this, again, vulnerability. They know that this is a child that craves love. This may be a child that feels uh, he or she may need money, and that's where the exploitation can begin. Correct. And children are are socialized to believe that adults are going to help them. That's what we think in our... We teach kids that adults, and they, and it's the reality of it, too. Our, for kids, adults provide food, clothing, shelter, all those things. And so in that way, Anna, traffickers uh, blur the lines. They, they appear to be helpers when, in fact, they're exploiters. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, what we see is that most of our trafficking experiences are produced through a relationship. So it's very common for someone to come out of a situation and have something called a trauma bond. So where they're almost wedded to their trafficker through relationship, um, either see them as a trusted friend, a sugar daddy, or even as a lover. Uh, and so there is this line of this person... Um, is providing me safety in some regards. Maybe they're providing them housing or food or money, but they're exploiting them through sexual gain. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And in line of the new documentary made by a Boulder filmmaker called Boys, we are talking about uh, young men and boys being trafficked sexually. That is often underreported. It's an undertold story. And I have to say it's particularly disturbing when the sex trafficker is not someone you know, out on the streets, but in the home. Uh, From the film, this is Robert, who lives in Colorado. 
my primary abuser uh, was my dad. He was very, very uh, clever in his grooming. He told us that this was how dads taught their sons about their bodies because moms don't have the same privates. Uh, and so we shouldn't tell mom because it'll make her feel bad that she doesn't know or can't understand. Um, and so it was just something that dads and sons did. And then it started from that into um, the molestation where he was molesting me. And I went from there to about age six, uh, he started raping. Um, and, and right about that same time, that he started raping me, he started trafficking me. I could not believe, Anna, how many people in your film either were trafficked by family or their family knew that it was happening. Did that surprise you? Uh, no, it didn't. It didn't. Um, what we know about trafficking is, yes, there can be the, a child can be recruited um, by uh, someone who is not affiliated with the family or not within their close, safe circle, but it, there's a high... Um, level of children who are trafficked by family members or close friends of the family. Is that a function of generational abuse, do you think? Is that an economic situation where their parents are looking to make money? What did you find out? And, and Caroline, certainly chime in here. I think it could be either. Um, I've seen both. Uh, but often there can be patterns within the family. That doesn't mean that that pattern will repeat with someone who's trafficked. We don't believe that. Um, and we don't, I've uh, not seen that. But um, and I've also seen families sell their children um, to make ends meet, to make apartment rents. Um, yeah, Caroline, anything you'd add? Yeah, no, I, Anna's absolutely right. And you are too. Um, there have been studies that show that contrary to popular belief and contrary to what's sensationalized in the media, uh -huh. and I don't, I'm not talking about boys documentary here, 90% um, of trafficking victims know their traffickers. 90%. So people are, are not kidnapped off the street. This, this notion of the sort of uh, nameless, faceless pimp is, is really actually not the majority. It's really not at huh. all. Let's talk about solutions. I think it's so easy to get daunted by this problem. What changes in society, what changes in our own awareness could make this better? Anna, want to start? Sure. Um, I've been doing this work since 2012, and uh, I've started to see some shift, particularly with the anti-trafficking movement, where men who are survivors are starting to speak out as advocates. And what I've seen is that even when we lift the veil, maybe watching the film or attending a training about what boys and men being trafficked looks like, identification of boys and men increases. And that's a positive. And so I think by even listening to the station, we're creating change right now. And is, is that about seeing the signs? Like, can the rest of us be sentinels in this way? I, I, seeing the signs would be a, a different category. In this, I'm, I'm, we're just considering that boys and men can absolutely be victims. So those who are in the front line already working with vulnerable children, the perception changes, the blinders start to come off. Interesting. Uh, Caroline, what would you add in the last few seconds? Here? I would agree that awareness is really the first step. And so um, people need to get trained. People need to understand what human trafficking really is, dispel the myths. When you say people need to get trained, who needs to get trained? People in our community not, and, and care, care service providers, law enforcement, um, other people, medical responders, people who have the access to frontline um, vision of trafficking victims need to get trained. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You heard from filmmaker Anna Smith of Boulder. She made the documentary Boys. 
about male sex trafficking. It'll make its Denver premiere February 7th at the Holiday Theater in Denver. The executive director of the group that fights trafficking is Caroline McKinnon of Streets Hope Denver. Teens who feel like they're under constant academic pressure are at greater risk of developing depression or anxiety. Pushing teens to excel can also increase sleep deprivation. Using technology in a bedroom during the day actually corrodes your ability to fall asleep at night in that same bedroom, even if the tech isn't there. I'm Jenny Brendine, and as CPR News has been exploring what's got teens under stress, we're also finding solutions. Look for tips for teens, parents, and schools now at CPR.org. This time of year, midwinter can feel blah. So let's add some botanic color with master gardener Lonnie Godet. She joins us each season to answer your gardening questions because it's not too early to prep for spring. Godet is with CSU Extension and joins us from Berthoud in northern Colorado. And Lonnie, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. What are you planning for your garden this year? This year, I'm planning to focus more on the perennials and shrubs in my yard and to start some seeds that I collected last fall. Seeds you collected? You mean in the wild? No, in my yard and also on a friend's piece of property. She's got a couple of acres and some interesting plants that grow there. But you're not really supposed to collect seeds from public property since it belongs to all of us. But I have a handful of native plants growing in my yard and I wanted to try and propagate them from seeds, which can sometimes be a little bit tricky, but it's a great learning experience. Yeah, give me an example of some seed that you hope to plant. One of them that I really love, it's called Ten Petal Blazing Star, and its botanic name is Mentzelia decapetala. It makes these huge, like as big as your hand, white flowers with 10 petals and bright yellow stamens in the center, really pretty plant. And it tends to grow by roadsides and where the soil's been disturbed. And I've got some in my yard that I've just never been able to get started in a pot. So I'm hoping this year will be the year. Oh, I'm looking at the 10-petal blazing star, I guess before it has opened and flowered. And that almost tulip-like bud early on Mm -hmm. is positively gorgeous. It's like a, a shock of white hair. And when it opens, it's even more beautiful. And the leaves are very interesting. They feel like a very fine grit sandpaper. Now, you didn't mention vegetables. Why, why leave them behind? Because they take a lot of time, especially <laughs> in the fall when you're trying, to, you're trying to harvest everything and put stuff up. And I've just gotten a little burned out. I'll still have a row or two of vegetables, but for the most part, I'm going to put some cutting flowers out in my vegetable beds. Cutting flowers, meaning that you'll cut them and they will decorate your home or serve as gifts for folks. Exactly. I'd like to get to some questions from our listeners on the subject of starting plants inside. We have a a couple of questions there. Hi, this is Johnny Rotherham from the Athmar Park neighborhood in Denver. We recently got a greenhouse in our backyard, and we were wondering what time is best to start growing crops in it and what crops those might be, um, and also what temperatures we should look for before we start planting in the greenhouse. Thanks. So lots of questions there, Lonnie, about timing with the greenhouse. That is a lot of questions. And unfortunately, I would have to ask a lot of questions to 
really give a better answer, the first question I would have is, do they have full sunlight even in the wintertime on this greenhouse? Do they have any supplemental heat? Are they planning on growing like in flats, the flats that you'd get at a nursery center on tables? Or are they planning to plant in the ground within the greenhouse? As long as the soil is warm enough, you can get seed germination, typically around 50 degrees for something like carrots and lettuce, uh, the cold season crops, broccolis, etc. Then if you're planting directly in the ground, it's possible you could get some things started late February, early March. But without asking more questions, it's really hard to answer that for sure. Yes, but inherent in all the questions you have are answers. And that is to say that a greenhouse is not one thing. There are lots of conditions within that greenhouse that influence the answer. Do I have that right? That's correct. Whether the greenhouse has a double layer of plastic with an air layer in between. Again, if you have supplemental heat, you can do a whole lot more. But most of the reason we have greenhouses is not to have to heat them like a commercial greenhouse would. How about a few more examples of what crops might do well starting in a greenhouse? Well, any crop would be, depending on the time of year, would be great to start in a greenhouse. But if you're looking for your cool season vegetables, uh, broccoli, kale, Brussels sprouts, lettuce, spinach, chard, all of those like those cooler temperatures. And it's possible that your greenhouse will give them just enough protection, even if we have a pretty good freeze that they would be able to do well. The other thing is if you're growing in the ground, you could do a hoop, a small hoop uh, with a a weather blanket on it, a frost protection for the plants Ah. within the greenhouse itself. So it'd have a double layer. And I've also seen where people have put in the old Christmas lights, the old incandescents that actually throw off some heat. (laughs) And they'll put those within that little hoop. So it's pretty and it does its job. Yeah, if you're okay with the shade of your neighbors wondering why your holiday lights are still up. (laughs) Right. Okay, one of our CPR staffers checked in with this somewhat related question. Hi there, I'm Mae Ortega in Glendale, Colorado. I have a vast indoor garden, and now that it's wintertime, I've been wondering how effective grow lights are compared to real sunshine. Thanks. Well, a lot of houseplants are fortunately appreciate low light situations. However, for those that do like a greater amount of sunlight or daylight, having a south-faced or west-faced window is the best option for them. But some houses, like my house, I really don't keep houseplants because it's very difficult with the light that we have. Mm. That being said, when I've started my vegetable starts, I usually do it in my basement and I use a full-spectrum fluorescent tube and I have them on pulleys where I can get them really close to the plants and move them up as the plants get taller. So that works quite well. Basically what the plant wants is a full spectrum of light. They need a mixture of colors, especially the reds and the blues. They don't need green obviously because they reflect that back at us and that's why they look green. But they need just a consistent long-term amount of light. So for vegetables, I would leave my lights on 16 to 18 hours a day. I'd have them on a timer. Also, if you're using incandescent lights, you have to be really careful because they're hot Mm. and you want to make sure they're not so close to your plant or they can just dry the soil out and then you come home and your plants are all wilted and flopped over. I hear in your answer, though, that you you don't have a ton of houseplants with grow lights. That's not a direction you've chosen to go. Correct. It's just a maintenance issue for me, a time and maintenance issue. I love houseplants. I've worked in greenhouses, nursery centers where we had houseplants and it was just my one of my favorites to work with. But in my house and with my schedule, I've decided they're not 
for me this time. Oh, so it's possible, but it's an investment. And you're hearing a theme from Lonnie, which is that she's going to take it a little easier this year. She's going to do things that, I guess, support a life outside of plants, Lonnie. That is correct. Yeah. Or a life outside with plants. <laughs> outside. Uh, here's a question from a listener who is thinking about his outdoor landscaping over the winter. My name's Chase Meyer, and I'm from Arvada, Colorado. I have a garden that has both native and non-native species of plants in it. I'm wondering if during the winter months I need to water those non-native species like peonies and roses in order to make them healthy for spring. It's never a bad idea to follow through with winter watering, whether it's your trees, sometimes our lawns, if we've had a really long drought period. This winter's been pretty good. We've had a lot of moisture and then it froze, which keeps the roots at a very slow rate of growth. Oh. But when we have these really warmer, windy days that strip out a lot of moisture through either the plants, branches, needles in the case of conifers, or the soil itself, if we're not well mulched, then it is a great idea to go out and water about once a month on a warm day, no snow cover, and at least 40 degrees. In terms of native versus non-native, of course, the natives typically require a lot less water right. than the non-natives. But in general, in our gardens, we're looking for this presentation in the summertime, this really beautiful presentation. And even the natives can benefit from an occasional watering if we've had a lot of dry weather. Again, being careful not to overwater them. Peonies and roses, both being non-native, the peonies are just tough as nails. I have watered mine in the winter, but I typically don't worry about them. And roses are almost the same, but they do tend to get desiccated in the winter a little bit more and take more damage to their stems than the peonies, which are obviously underground in the winter. I love the idea of peonies as tough as nails. They are. They are. They're so blousy and pretty, and we think that they would be timid or just not as hardy, but they are really tough plants. Knocking stereotypes out of the way left and right here. Uh, yep. We got this question via Twitter from at Ruby Wayward, quoting here. I always see newcomers to Colorado put their plants out too soon in the spring and get surprised by a blizzard or two. When is it usually safe to put your plants outside? I really like that question because it's, it's not just new people to Colorado. I have been out there in the early, early spring, way before I should have ever put a plant out, digging them back out and bringing them back into the house. <laughs> so it's not just the new people, but Mother's Day is what we typically consider safe. And I always suggest that people look at the weather report for their area specifically for that you know week or two after Mother's Day as they're starting to think about planting. But that's the day we usually say is safe. Okay, I'm... At least in the, let, let me clarify that, at our elevation. At our elevation. I am furiously right, the go Googling Mother's Day. Okay, May 10th, Sunday, May mm -hmm. 10th. That, that helps not only yeah. the gardeners, but it helps kids not forget Mother's Day. Uh, so a different That's date correct. then for the high country? Usually a week or two later, at least. Okay. And uh, it depends on how high you're talking about. Right. I suppose it would be uh, different between a place like Dillon and a place like, say, Leadville. Exactly. Another listener is also thinking about his yard. My name is David Pulsifer from Littleton, Colorado, and I have a three-part question. When should I aerate my lawn, and what sort of fertilizer should I use? 
Okay, those two, for starters, we'll get to the third one coming up here. Uh, But to aeration and fertilizer. So aeration, in my mind, most people say spring and fall, or spring or fall, depending on your how compact your lawn is. I like to think of it more that any time you can actually get the equipment that they do the aerations with deep enough to get a good core, and you want a solid three to four inch core out of your lawn. So if you've got your irrigation system on, you can water a few days ahead of time, and maybe then you know a day and a half ahead of time, et cetera. Make sure that your lawn, you could stick a screwdriver into it fairly easily and get down to four to six inches, because otherwise you're sort of wasting your money and you're wasting your time. It's a lot of work to have someone come out or to rent the equipment to do it yourself and go out there and get inch and a half cores that they're beneficial, but they're not nearly as beneficial. The whole purpose is to decompact the lawn. So the deeper the core, the better off you are. And then I always go over the lawn at least twice because the holes on the on the aerator or the tines, they're four inches apart, but I like my aeration to be closer to two inches apart if possible. I will say I did an aeration this fall and it was fantastic, got great cores. But the problem is when I go out there to clean up after my dogs, I can't tell one from the other. <laughs> yes, I've, It's I, not pleasant. That's, I can see exactly what you're describing there in my in my mind. So make the aeration Mm -hmm. worth your time. And what about uh, David's fertilizer question? So fertilizer, I always have to go back to a soil test. There are a lot of times when we don't really even need to fertilize, but we do it because of habit, because someone said we should, etc., or because we're on a contract to have it fertilized. But I would really caution people that we don't need to use all the chemicals, whether it's an organic chemical or a synthetic chemical that we don't need to use them unless a soil test tells us we really do. Soil tests available through CSU Extension among a variety of places, but it's really working with information, data about your lawn to know whether you have a deficit or not. Exactly. So between the soil test and then looking at the quality of your lawn this year, I'm not going to need to fertilize because I know the quality of my lawn last year was really good. We had no thin spots, very few weeds, We had done a lot of work over the last couple of years, mostly with aeration and then once a year fertilization. Why throw a chemical at something, even if it's an organic chemical, if your lawn already has it or even your your trees or your vegetable garden? And this is your time and money for that matter. Okay, here is the third part of Dave's question. He's getting a lot in. What are low maintenance and attractive plants for landscaping that I can use in the front of my home? Wow. It's really hard to give examples of good plants if you don't know more about the situation they're going to be planted in because, of course, we always say right plant, right place. Mm. And then what size? So you don't want to plant a blue spruce tree five foot from the corner of your home when you know that the finished diameter on a fully grown spruce can be up to 60 feet. So you'd want to plant it 30 feet away from your house to give it that full, beautiful skirt that a blue spruce would have. So knowing the size, the location, the uh, soil type. And you can also call. Each of the counties has a Master Gardener help desk, or you can email us and ask all the questions you want. You can send photographs, and we'll do our very best to give you good suggestions. Wow. Okay, another question that came to us via Twitter, at Maple Syrup asks, are leaf mold... And fish fertilizer 511, enough nutrient adds to native soil for vegetable gardening. Are other soil modifiers worth the money? 
And Lonnie, I, I confess, I don't have much of a green thumb, so you might do some interpreting for us when we hear leaf mold and fish fertilizer 511. So both of those are a very, it's a low nitrogen, low phosphorus, low potassium, kind of a general fertilizer, would promote more greening of plants than anything else. And leaf mold is from broken down leaves, like you would find in the corner of your yard where they'd been pushed up against the house and just rotting away. The fish, fish emulsion is what I've, I've always called it, you know, they bring in all these little fish, usually like menhaden or something, and then they boil them down, they extract oils, they end up with a fish meal at the end and a fish emulsion. So it's actually ground up fish bodies. Huh. Yeah. And they are both very good fertilizers. But again, if you don't need fertilizer, why put it on there? And the surprising thing about even vegetables, they typically only need about a 5% nitrogen in the soil itself. So getting your soil test first will tell you a whole lot about what you would actually need to put in there. And the soil test results when they come back, when you fill out the form and send in your soil, you say, what do you want to grow there? And if you said vegetables and your soil comes back with only 3% nitrogen and the tilth is wrong, the tilth is the structure of the soil. So if it comes back as really heavy clay, they may recommend adding compost, which would add both nutrients and improve tilth. But this all comes back with your soil test results. So I think that still is the best suggestion I would have. Information is power, people. Uh, You'll make a lot of Mm -hmm. good decisions with it. Okay, let's test drive a new segment before we go, Lonnie, about gardening advice that we see on Facebook or that you may have heard from a friend. Is this advice we should trust or is it a bust? So do you know what we're going to call this segment? Trust or bust? Uh Uh-huh. Yep, very good. Okay. All right. Making sure you're following along. Okay. Trust or (laughs) bust. My friend's mother always told her that she could use dish soap as an insecticide to get bugs off vegetable plants. Well, let's bust this one. And we're going to partially bust it because it is true that soaps and detergents will kill insects. Typically, it dehydrates them. And it's got to be the little soft-bodied insects like aphids and thrips and such. But the problem with household like dish soap or detergents is that they can damage the leaf a lot. So they can actually damage the plants, whereas the uh, insecticidal soaps that you buy at a garden center are specific to both kill insects and not damage your plants. Okay, so dish soap uh, leaves a little to be desired. Um, Trust or... It's a little harsh. A little harsh. Trust or bust a lumpy lawn. Sounds bad, but it's actually good. That's actually true. When you have a lumpy lawn, well, there are actually two causes. Some could be that you have a tree growing there and its roots are up at the surface, which is actually very good for the tree. And you just want to mulch around that and and allow it to be lumpy. But the other reason your lawn might be lumpy is the presence of night crawlers. And this is actually quite a good thing because the night crawlers are going to go through, they're going to chomp on the thatch that builds up in your lawn. They're going to help decompose the lawn clippings. They're going to aerate your lawn. Yeah, it's not 10 inches down, but you're going to get that top surface area aerated as the worms go through it. And it's actually a good thing. It's a good thing, just like Martha would say, uh, to have a lumpy lawn. Okay, bust or trust. I have heard that Epsom salt and household vinegar are great for killing weeds and correct a lot of ills in your garden. It seems to me that uh, vinegar... Vinegar is like seen now as the as the cure-all. It is, and Epsom salts are the same. So vinegar, 
only belongs in your garden once you've harvested and made a salad out of it. Um, <laughs> there, <laughs> there is a horticultural vinegar that is used indeed for weed suppression. The problem with it, and the people have to realize, this is a 20% acetic acid. This is not your household vinegar. You have to have your personal protective equipment. It is very accurate to the mucous membranes, your nose, your lungs, your throat, your eyes. It will make your eyes water like nothing else. And if you're spraying it underneath bushes and shrubs, you may also be damaging toads or frogs that you want to have in your yard. So, it, and that's a very painful process for them as mm. well because you're, you're going to, yeah, you're going to burn them up and it's going to hurt. So it's really good. The horticultural vinegar is really good to use if you have pathways or driveways where you can see exactly what you're spraying. And you wear your PPE, your personal protective equipment, and that could be a mask or you definitely want to have eye protection on and whatever else the label says. I'm assuming it will say some type of a heavy glove, a, a rubber glove. And the use of Epsom salts is, it's everywhere. It is all over the internet. The only place that Epsom salts are truly effective are when you have a magnesium deficiency. So we often like to think about things, well, Epsom salts, it's natural. We can drink Epsom salts. We can drink a certain amount of Epsom salts, and you will still have some deleterious effects if you drink too much. In the garden, the salts actually do build up in our soils and then can inhibit other plants from growing. So again, if you've got a place where you just don't want anything to grow, maybe that is something you want to try. But both of these, if they give you much effect at all, the household vinegar, mind you, the horticultural vinegar will give you an effect, but they're going to burn off the leaves at the top, kind of like your dish soap would mm -hmm. also do. Uh, yeah. And then it's going to come back up from the bottom. You know, your plant, the weeds are going to come back up from their root system and you're going to have to do this several times. So it's not a one time and done. So then you end up with more and more buildup of this magnesium sulfate in your soils. Again, if you have a a known magnesium deficiency in your soil. And I've actually had that once in some depleted soil I was working with growing tomatoes and I was staring at them wondering, what on earth is the matter with you? We had some yellowing leaves, some curliness, and that ended up being the fix for them, but that was in containers that were depleted soil. It was not in the environment. So I suppose this goes back to the theme of this conversation, which is know your garden, know your soil. soil. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. Lonnie Godet of Berthid is a master gardener with CSU Extension, and she joins us seasonally to answer your questions. Well, finally today. 2019 was a big year for one country music legend. Her songs inspired a Netflix series. There's a new podcast devoted to her life. She co-hosted the CMA Awards and celebrated 50 years with the Grand Ole Opry. You know who I'm talking about. Jolene, 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 Jolene. I'm begging of you, please don't take my man. Jolene, 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 Jolene. Please don't take him just because you can. Yes, Dolly Parton is having a moment, or another one. She just turned 74 last week, and fans here in Colorado are throwing a birthday bash, the inaugural Dolly Day Denver. Two doors down, and loving and drinking and having a party. 
Trolley Day Denver is partly a fundraiser for the local branch of Parton's Imagination Library, a program she started 30 years ago that's given away millions of books to kids across the country. Before he passed away, my daddy told me that the Imagination Library probably was the most important thing I'd ever done. Now, I can't tell you how much that meant to me because I created the Imagination Library as a tribute to my daddy. He was the smartest man I've ever known, but I knew in my heart his inability to read probably kept him from seeing all his dreams come true. Inspiring kids to love to read became my mission. So the event on Sunday will include story time for children, plus line dancing, a drag show, and an attempt at the Guinness World Record for the largest gathering of Dolly lookalikes. I've always been misunderstood because of how I me by the cover cause I'm a real good book so read into it what you will but see me as I am the way I look is just a country girl's idea of plan the inaugural Dolly Day Denver is Sunday at the Oriental Theater in the Berkeley neighborhood The festivities will be soundtracked by plenty of her greatest hits. Happy belated birthday, Dolly. Happy, happy birthday, baby. If only you could see this coat of many colors I'm wearing to cover up these old bones. I'm Ryan Warner. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News.